Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome, welcome, lovely listeners. Um, We are here again as Skylit, the Skylight Books podcast series where we bring conversations with authors near and far to you in the safety of your home, your car, your headphones, wherever you are in the world, in this crazy mixed up world right now. We're here with you with good books, trying to keep you company. Um, I am Maddie Gobo. I'm your host and the events manager here at Skylight Books. If you don't know much about Skylight Books, um, if you just found our podcast by random chance on the internet, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Um, Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. Right now we are open for curbside pickup, online orders on our website, skylightbooks.com. And if you're local, you can come by for in-store browsing if you wear a mask and socially distance and sanitize your hands and do all the good stuff that we do now. Um, We also have plenty of virtual events coming up happening on our Crowdcast. Um, You can follow our Crowdcast page at crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. Got lots of good stuff coming for the fall. We're also working on some partnered, beautiful, fabulous, high production value book with ticket events um, that are going to be virtual, but they're going to be extra special and interactive. Um, We're going to be co-producing those with our friends over at Dynasty Typewriter. Our first event with them is going to be September 8th. We're hosting the launch party for Chuck Palahniuk's new novel, The Invention of Sound, which sounds really scary and also really funny. Um, and very Hollywood. So uh, we hope you check that out. You can find the listing on our website, skylightbooks.com slash event. Um, Yeah, so without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce today's guests. Um, I'm really excited to hear poems today. It's so nice to come on and just have people read to me. Um, That's my favorite thing about this podcast. I I get to sit here and listen, and I don't have to worry about any tech issues or anything crazy going on in the background. I just get to enjoy. Um, So I'm really excited today to welcome Rory Waterman, who is an Irish-born English poet. Um, He's going to be talking about his new collection, Sweet Nothings, with Andre Nafis Saheli. Um, I'm going to read their bios now so you can learn a little bit more about them. Rory Waterman is an Irish-born English poet. His three collections, all with Carcanet, are Tonight the Summer's Over, which came out in 2013, a poetry books society recommendation and shortlisted for the Seamus Haney Prize, Sarajevo Roses, which came out in 2017 and was shortlisted for the Ledbury Fort Prize, and Sweet Nothings, which just came out in 2020. He is also editor of New Walk Editions, a press critic, and the author of several books on post-war poetry. He works at Nottingham Trent University. Andre Nafis Saheli is the author of the collection The Promised Land, Poems from Itinerant Life, came out in 2017, and the pamphlet The Other Side of Nowhere, which came out in 2019. He is also the editor of The Heart of a Stranger, an anthology of exile literature, which was actually, we did an event for that book uh, that was one of the few events we got in in 2020 before the shutdown. Right. Yeah, so um, here we are welcoming you back to our virtual fake version of Skylight, even though you got you actually did get to do your event in person. Um, so thanks for coming back. Um, Andre's translation of Allo, Allo, Allo by Ribka Sabatu received a Pen Translates Award from English Pen. Rory and Andre, welcome to the program. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. Hello. Thank you so much, Maddie. I'm really glad to, to be doing this. 
So uh, you guys are just going to kind of jump into conversation and then Rory's going to read poems throughout. Is that how we're going to go today? Yeah, absolutely. All right, All right so I'm going to uh, mute myself Sorry. and I'll let you take it away. Thanks, Maddie. So I'm delighted to uh, finally be able to be in conversation with Rory. Um, uh, as, as some of the uh, the listeners tuning in perhaps might might know, Rory and I actually have known each other for for quite a while. And interestingly enough, as often happens with nomadic globetrotters, um, uh, we we fell out of touch for a while. But I never fell out of touch with the poems, and that to me felt always significant. Rory, I don't know if I ever said this to you, but I think you were the first poet I ever met who I felt, yes, this man will produce an important body of work and, uh, and it's one I can't wait to read over the years, whether or not we are in touch personally. You um, know, actually, actually, sorry to jump in. I mean, but in you're saying some nice things about me, you can carry on if you like in a minute, <laughs> fill the whole podcast with that if you like. But um, no, the same's true of you, actually. Um, yeah, we kind of found each other, didn't we? Um, we did. God, that sounds romantic, but it's true. <laughs> though. We did. It's true. It's true. We were doing. PhDs. This is a long way we to coming together, folks. We both had a full head of hair. You know, we, we <laughs> you know, we, we this before we'd started going dead. You know, but I mean, you know, and, and yeah, I saw that. I saw a lot of that in you as well. I was very drawn to you. For, I knew that you'd go somewhere and you have done. And I don't mean like across the sea and then across the country, um, but I knew I knew your writing was really going somewhere. And it has, and it's brilliant to see. Thank you so much. Well, today is about you, however. And one of the things that I thought I'd begin with, uh, partly because I think it's so apt and accurate, and partly also because, um, sorry, I mean, this is going to be recorded, so I think we can sort of edit out. I lost my thread there slightly because I jumped ahead. Um, you know, do you, would you mind and go ahead and read the first poem for us? Absolutely. So um, the first poem I'm going to read is uh, it's called Genesis 6.15, Acts 26.5, Matthew 6.34. Actually, before I read it, I'll say that I, um, I went to a, a very small Church of England primary school in Lincolnshire in the east of England, which is where I mostly grew up. Um, and uh, yeah, so we had, we had a certain amount of religious instruction in amongst everything else. Um, Genesis 6.15, Acts 26.5, Matthew 6.34. How big's a cubit? I don't believe it. It couldn't. I looked up from my half crayons boat of giraffes and such like at Mrs. Milson, who knew. <laughs> you wouldn't, and you aren't the first to think like that, she laughed. But when Canon Rogers, whose name I was too small to appreciate, next gave our school assembly, they singled me out to read. The tiny hall grew huge. I stalled on testify, Pharisee, which parts to stress? And then we had to sing. Kiss my ass, Lord, kiss my ass. The bigger boys behind me muttered, grinning. I gawped out at the wet, bright trees and grass. No flood in our world. Now I'm a world away, nursing another beer, a parent's age. Thank you so much, Rory. And um, for all you listeners, uh, the poem Rory just read is the very first poem in Sweet Nothings, his third collection. And you mentioned your religious schooling just prior to reading the poem, Rory, but I thought perhaps you might share a few thoughts on what the sacralization or the concept of the sacred in the first place means to you. Because it's something I've noticed relatively consistently throughout your work has been this engagement yeah. with uh, the religious side of life, uh, specifically when it comes to institutions. Um, I think sometimes there's a satirical tone. Uh, yeah. Sometimes there is a questing for something else too, um, and which I think is, appears in this poem, which I think outside of being a scene from school life, seems to be digging at something deeper. Would you 
mind elaborating on it? Yeah, uh, well, I'll do my best. It's a great question. I'm not sure I'm up to it. Um, what I would say about my schooling is my primary schooling. I mean, it, it was religious in a sense. Uh, I, I grew up in, in about a mile from the nearest small village. They're just small villages around where I grew up. And school meant going to a Church of England school. Mm -hmm. And there was some degree of, you know, we did assembly and we sang hymns and stuff. But it's the first introduction I really had to this concept of sort of God, Christianity and that sort of thing. And, and it didn't mean much to me, really. And it didn't mean much to the other kids either, for the most part. Some of them went to Sunday school, but that was just play, really, I think, is the way they thought of it. And Canon Rogers, who I mentioned in the poem, was this very stern sort of guy who, who was the, sort of the local vicar, I guess, um, well, a canon. Um, and, and he obviously had no real experience with children and wasn't very comfortable around them. Um, and um, he would talk to us about God and stuff, and then he'd go, and we didn't really listen to him. At least that's, that's the impression I got. I certainly didn't, and I was quite a good kid at that age. Um, so I guess I had a kind of religious upbringing in that sense at school, but not otherwise, not at all. But then in, I, I was born in Northern Ireland and my dad lived there until I was 16 or so. And, I, and from the age of 10, um, until then, until the age of 10, I was made a ward of court and I couldn't be taken outside of England and Wales. But mm -hmm. after that, I'd spend most of my holidays in Ireland with my dad and he lived in, the town of Coleraine, which is a, a mainly Protestant town, but in an area which was sort of a mixed area of Catholic and Protestant. And the friends I had when I was growing up were Catholics and religion didn't seem to matter that much to them either, you know? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I was very aware of, of that context there. So, so I kind of divorced religion as a sort of practice from, from a kind of, you know, something sort of, above and beyond and, and a framework, a social framework for people really. Um, I suppose to me, I've never, I've never been a particularly, it saddens me to say this, but I, I'm not uh, in some ways, but I, I'm not at all a, a religious person. Um, mm. Though I've gone through the normal phases of reading the Tao Te Ching and all that sort of stuff. But um, you think uh, in a sense, you know, the, uh, I guess what I'm trying to get to in some ways is, and I say this completely as, a, as an outsider, as you know, even though I spent 11 years in the UK, I, I, I don't really consider myself English, not that I consider myself anything else for that matter. I was going to say, what same, are you? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, uh, TBD. But <laughs> I think something that I've noticed looking at um, certain poets, I mean, we go back all the way to, to Alden, to, to Lark and yeah. to Benjamin, and even some more contemporary voices like, like Michael Hoffman, who himself, you know, has spent yeah. so much time in England, but isn't quite English. I mean, he's quite always strongly protested that he's German, actually. But right. it seems like the Church of England sometimes is being used as, a, as an overriding metaphor for uh, a, a spiritual or practical unease like kind of trying to slip into someone else's shoes in the sense that it's, it's one often finds it used as a setting where doubt can thrive, which is, which is not really quite a, a yeah. Catholic mentality. Um, and, and I wonder if, no, if, that, if you've been drawn to that element because of the anti-establishment feeling that I think really does run throughout your work. Um, I think this, this might even segue into uh, you telling us a little bit about your sequence uh, around yeah. the uh, the, <laughs> the very amusing Dr. Bob Pintle. Um, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> um, well, well, yeah. I, I suppose there is quite a strong anti-establishment streak, quite a a, a, um, a, a left-wing and liberal, liberal in the true sense, um, mm -hmm. but left in the true sense as well. Um, mm -hmm. uh, frame in which I. Uh, tend to think. Um, though I'm interested in heterodoxy as well. I'm interested in ideas that aren't mine. Um, uh, but yes, I do, I, I do have a sort of strong bent towards anti-establishment anti stances often as it turns out. And I suppose with having said that, I'm like most people, I'm full of most people who are true to themselves. I'm full of contradictions as well. And, and, and I kind of see myself as a, as a, as an Anglican atheist, you know, um, <laughs> I feel very comfortable in a church. I love it. You know, I go to carol services and stuff. I mean, it just doesn't sit. Well and that's such a specifically English condition I too. I, I, I couldn't yeah. think of any other parallel, frankly. It's such a unique yeah, that's right. English condition. 
but and I especially love the kind of the high church ceremony, but I also mm-hmm. deplore it in so many ways and all the things <laughs> it stood for and, and the control it's had over people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, try going into Ely Cathedral, Canterbury Cathedral, Lincoln Cathedral, and not just feeling sort of overwhelmed by immense beauty. You can't do it. And tradition and the fact that so many people have passed through those doors and, and felt something, you know, and that's powerful. You can't you can't kind of deny that. So there are both of those things there, you know. Um, yeah. And I wonder if yeah. you might read Final Years for us as a kind of segue into okay. talking about your Pinto series. All right. Okay. So uh, Bob Pintle is a character I invented, Dr. Bob Pintle, um, in my second book. My second book was called Sarajevo Roses. And in that collection, he is a lecturer in creativity at Peterborough University. Now, Peterborough does, University doesn't exist. Um, although I, I gave a reading, actually it was a poetry and politics reading uh, um, at the South Bank in London about a year and a half ago. And um, someone who is involved in setting it up told me when I was about to read these poems, told me that actually there is a Peterborough University. It's called Peterborough University Centre or something. And he was involved in, in establishing it. Um, and apparently he also, th- he also thinks he's a Maoist, which is an interesting interesting philosophy for an academic to have so you know presumably he'll be uh, putting his back against the wall when the revolution he so dearly wants comes but um uh so i um i'd, I'd written these poems about about bob pintle for my first book and it was mainly for the entertainment of a friend um a poet andrew taylor um who's a colleague of mine and he has a sort of hapless day in that book and then i thought well no there are many other things i want to interrogate and attack i'm no Mm-hmm. Though it served me well in some ways, I'm, and I can't deny that, uh, I have a job. I have the life I have because of it in many ways. But at the same time, I have quite severe, serious problems with the neoliberal academy. As um, we all should. The neoliberalism of, of um, inherent in the academy and the, the impetus behind those changes to education. So I thought, well, how... How would how my character, Bob Pintle, who's quite a reprehensible figure, how would he, how would he sort of face, how, 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 how would he fare in this world as it changes? Um, so I wrote some poems about him. Um, and now he's been promoted because this sort of thing always happens to people like him. So he's now a senior lecturer and his job titles changed, changed a little bit. He's a senior lecturer in professional creativity at Peterborough University. So this poem's called Final Years. For and about Dr. Bob Pintle, Senior Lecturer in Professional Creativity, Peterborough University. For years and years, Pintle blew annual dust off turgid lectures, was happy to earn his crust from gobbets he'd once committed to memory. But now the culture's changed. His new VC has various agendas, globalisation, foreign students, employability, and just for him, a new professionalization of writing module, whatever the fuck that is. So he stands in front of the solemn three of seven who've made it in, his class starts at 11, and mocks up cover letters, draws up lists, talks up blind hopes. Of course, they'll never climb the slippery pole rubbed dry for nepotists, nor learn the wits to avoid it. In 12 months' time, he knows he'll write them each a teaching course reference. Harry's sometimes punctual and shows deference to blind authority, often reads enough to write his essays and other copy-paste guff after they've all grown bored with growing bored. What do I need to do to get a first? Blairs Lara, a six-sized sharpen on his eyes in sudden wakefulness. He's not rehearsed a valid and honest answer, So he lies, then circles the words career aims on the board and starts a mind map. It grows a couple of arms. Uni tutor, I'd like to do what you do. Writer, to use my degree. A car alarm moans through the glass, somewhere out of view, off campus. He lets them go. It's 22. As I'm sure many of our listeners will know, there's quite a lot of dissatisfaction with academia at the moment. I mean, here in the U.S., we're seeing institutions with gigantic endowments, all of them 
procured in the most distasteful of ways, set aside um, rather than be used while they're laying off or furloughing people. And one of the things that struck me about the sequence yeah, casualization of, of sorry, I talked over you, but casualization of, um, of labor is a big problem. Absolutely. Uh, well, that's absolutely right. And no, please, please talk over me as much as you want. Um, because, <laughs> and I, frankly here, what I've seen in this sequence, one of the reasons that it really hit me, I think is, and I'm not sure, uh, memory fails me, I'm not sure if it's really done before, I, I wonder if you know, but it struck me as just a wonderful campus novel in verse. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're not I, the first to say that actually. Right, and I think it's, it's, it's really the, one of the, I think the campus novel was a great form for voicing dissatisfaction with higher education, because of course, while based around very noble concepts and intentions, yeah. the way we have commercialized, corporatized, and bureaucratized it um, has, of course, led to a situation that seems to satisfy very few, including the people who are able to get jobs within the system, such as that's yourself. Right. Well, well that's right. Because it's important the to have a view from the inside like yours. So. Oh. Well, yeah, the campus novel, of course, did a lot of those things, but it did it mm -hmm. for a different generation, right? Yes. Things were very different then. And um, a lot of the problems we have now aren't the problems of then, much as the problems mm -hmm. of that time are, are perfectly legitimate. Um, that's all I wanted to say. Sorry, what, what was your... No, that was it. I, I, I think... Uh... This is actually, and again, I think it links us back to... The oh, well, I don't want to talk too much about... Uh, <laughs> sorry, I just realized I, I, yeah. I don't want to talk too much about, um, about my personal problems with the academy because I don't want to get fired, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 I think you'll excuse me. If, no, but um, uh, more generally, I, I, I see a lot of the same problems that I'm, I'm sure you do and, and most people um, in the academy do see. And a, a lot of those involve students as well i mean here the um the fees that students had to pay used to be when i did my degree it was 1100 pounds a year and that might sound ludicrously low to to americans but mm -hmm. that's what it was well it's not now it's above 9000 pounds a year just like that well it went up to 3 and then it tripled again you know um, and that's a fraction so that's the of the kind cost of debt. that Americans have to confront as well. So. Oh yes, but yeah. it still it still makes it much harder for it makes it a much bigger decision to go to university if you don't have lots of money. Absolutely, so it I mean, immediately course, alienates unlike, a lot of people. Yeah, and like you, you know, because I think I was the very last intake where I paid the exact same fees as you did. This was so I matriculated in two thousand four, but the top up fees came up in two thousand five. That's so was right. Part yeah. of the very last year that um, was able to pay a thousand two hundred pounds a year, and I knew even then that it hadn't gone up to three like it did in two thousand five. I wouldn't have been able to afford to go to college at all. Yeah, so. I mean there there is a difference in the sense that we have you know we have the student loans company. The idea is that you don't you don't pay back a vastly inflated amounts, and you don't pay it back unless you can afford it but it's still it's going to make um a lot of parents so we're in the age of helicopter parenting now we, we just are and it's going to encourage a lot of parents to to say to their 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 their, their children um uh, who are thinking of going to university don't do that don't be saddled with that do this instead and that's fine i mean there's nothing wrong with people making decisions that aren't to go to university and in many cases i think that would be a a good thing for people to do that more generally and to have other options as well. But, um, but if they're not doing it because the finances seem too punitive, that doesn't seem, that's not the way a healthy society should function. And, and it's not the way healthy societies do function. And, and ours in that way isn't, and yours isn't either, you know? Um, uh, I say yours, although you're a man of the world, you know, I mean the country you're in at the moment. Oh, um, the whole world's one in that respect, unfortunately. And I think this is something that, that also perhaps fuels your travels because, you know, I think um, to, to link back to the anti-established feel, I feel like we've, we've gone from uh, an exploration of, of uh, a, a sacred part of childhood to academia. And what I wanted to switch to now were your travel poems. I remember when, I read your first book. Um, I was really struck by uh, the travel poems you wrote that were set in very icy Nordic climes. And in Sarajevo oh, yeah. Roses, your second book, you then switched to very sunny climes. I thought that was quite an interesting shift. And in I'd fact, never I noticed that. Read. I hadn't thought about that for a moment. That's weird. But you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, the first, the first book contained poems about the Faroe Islands, didn't it, mainly in, in, in that way. And then 
and then of course all over the place in the second book but mainly southern and eastern europe anyway Indeed. sorry yes and um I actually wanted to read to you a, a quote from a review of Sarajevo Roses by Robert Selby, uh, whose, whose own book, The Coming Downtime, uh, is absolutely fantastic. I, I, one day I'd like to see you two read together. Um, oh, like I'm, going to, I'm going to read this, this section here. Um, now, as if to disprove something about his outlook, Waterman's second collection, Sarajevo Roses, sees him venture forth to sunnier climes, Basilicata, Mallorca, Paris, and Vatican City scaling volcanoes and take, talking Trump versus Clinton in an American diner. Allusions to past tragedies in places where tourist trade now thrives. The Bosnian War in Sarajevo Roses, for example, or this landslide of 1963 in ghost town Basilicata. A reminder that peace is always vulnerable, though it is sometimes hard not to feel they have been shoehorned in to lend proceedings a profundity that is not otherwise present. Now... <laughs> <laughs> guilty <laughs> what no actually i i read that partly also to disagree with it um because i i do think that part of the reason that you wander off on your travels is because you're not satisfied with what you're finding at home and we will link this to another poem in a minute but i wanted you to really tell us about why because this is very much an element of your work the travel poem and and i wanted you to really give us an insight into yeah. what propels you what puts you in that mindset well, I, I, I despise the travel poems, uh, you know, travel poems, quote unquote, um, that, that sort of say, oh, I sat on a veranda, I was sitting on a veranda having a glass of champagne, I'll piss off, I couldn't give a fuck, you know. Um, and there's a lot of that, that sort of thing. Um, I'm only interested in writing about things if I find them interesting myself, you know. Um, and if I think they can, and in terms of a poem, if, if it's likely to make some kind of connection. So normally, I suppose, in my travel poems, um, if you call them that, um, or the poems about places where I don't live, haven't lived, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I guess my biggest concerns in those poems is... Uh, myself and how things come across to me and those sorts of differences and how they might extrapolate for other people um does that make sense um, absolutely it does absolutely yeah so 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 i'm 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 less interested in the place normally than in the interaction you know mm -hmm. um between people in that place or yeah. or or um what has happened and what that means in a sort of broader context um, and and I'm I'm not at all frustrated by, by uh, well by Robert's um, suggestion of cramming in a profundity there um, or any reviewers. I never really mind that those sorts of things. I'm a reviewer myself, so um, I have no problems with those comments. Well, I can I mean, see for, how for, that for our might... listeners, we should we should stress that it's it's an absolutely glowing review. Um, oh, it is. It's a lovely review. <laughs> so it's a lovely review, and that's another the, reason not I to don't give mind. people the wrong impression here. It's a, it's a glowing <laughs> review of that book. Um, but I think what I can see how that comes across. Uh, it yeah, certainly no, isn't what, what a, yeah. And, and I, and I think that what, uh, what I wanted to underscore here, and, uh, this is, this is, this is perhaps where, where Selby's ideas don't quite see what is going on. One of the things I've drawn to your travel poems and like you, I think I, I really just despise the label, but fake a conversation. Yeah. Let's just roll with it. What do we go? Um, is the cosmopolitan side to things in the sense that, whenever I encountered the work of English poets before, and I think three really famous examples come to mind, you know, part of the 80s, 90s generation, Michael Hoffman with German, Stephen Romer with French, and Jamie Kendrick yeah. with Italian. It always felt like poets who were very comfortable within the English idiom, like you are, like Selby is, had a tendency to either not travel outside of that idiom or to, in a sense, section off certain parts of the world that they become then individual masters of. Now, while, of course, I like the work of all those poets, I, what it really drew me to yours was this cosmopolitan feeling, this embracing of the world. And I, I do wonder if that's being uh, at least fueled in part by the disaffection of being at home within that idiom, but not feeling quite at home within it. I wonder if there's anything going on there. Being at home within that idiom. Um... I, I suppose I'm... you master the language and you know what you're talking about. You write about it beautifully, but I don't get the sense of someone who's truly comfortable in England. Ergo, perhaps. Oh, I see that you exhibit through your travel poems. 
Oh, my wanderlust is 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 constant, and um, much much as I love many things about this country, um, uh, it it doesn't complete me, you know. Um, and uh, I don't really know what else to say apart from uh, apart from that that I that I um, I'm always this is I suppose this is very common, but I'm always inspired when I'm traveling somewhere else to think about there's a kind of palimpsest at play. There's, there's mm-hmm. myself and who I am and what I grew up with and, 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 you know, just everything that centers me. And then that, that not be slight, that being knocked slightly out of joint by being, being somewhere else and embracing those kind of ideas and traditions. And normally as a, as a visitor, who's, who's just passing through really. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and knows full well that that's what he's doing. Um, and that's and that's you know, where the uh, the profundity I think actually. I'm not a master of anywhere else, but uh, but mm-hmm. uh, um, and I, I don't think I could be. I think I'm too interested in too many different places. Uh, in recent years, I've spent a lot of time going back and forth to the Balkans when I can. Yeah. Um, I'm particularly fascinated by um, Bosnia, Albania, places like that. Um, but I have no mastery of them, and I don't speak the language either. Language is either. Uh, um, uh, Would you like to use one of your? Nocturnes? I'm very much an outsider. Very much an <laughs> nice. outsider in those environments. One of the nocturnes. So there are three poems in the book called Nocturne. Well, called named after a city, and then with the word nocturne. So there, there's Bratislava Nocturne, Vilnius Nocturne, and then Nottingham Nocturne, which is a course city and the most glamorous of the lot <laughs> but i'm going to read bratislava nocturne is that one all right with you andrew Please. here we go bratislava nocturne sleet hunches us the bars are shutting he turns grinning gloved hand stretched you boys want club 18 euro for all you like to drink we shrug why not a nod He leads us down a flight of cracked steps, along a passage to a pleathered lair, then leaves. There's no time to think before the surly hostess takes our cash and seats us with two beers and slivervitches we haven't ordered. Please drink, she pleads. We do, and bam, two more arrive. Please drink, she pleads. What is this place? The seats are oddly wide. Enough, almost, for two each side of the table and face a spotlit stage. It has a pole, and soon on that, a woman who is a pole, I come to learn, when she crams next to me, all cold and sparkling flesh, demanding I down the spirit she offers. I hear one day, she says, you pay me private dance? No, but what would you keep? She stares, repeats her line. Us boys stands to leave. The floor bucks as she reaches to squeeze my hand. Our hostess blocks the way. You buy farewell drink now for lovely lady, 50 each. Two bouncers hover. We pay, then turn to face the darkened bars, the seat. Thank you so much, Rory. That was that was fantastic. And you know, one of the images that flooded back in my memory when I heard you read the poem was uh, a poem by Jenny Z um, that was set in Corfu. And I think, like the best, and again, forgive me for the label, but like the best travel poems, I think what I really love about the form is that it strips away almost all the quote-unquote unnecessary decor and scaffolding and just strips it down to the basic human condition and here of course it's exploitation which is absolutely uh, yeah. present in every country and completely flouts the notion of borders and again oh, yeah, there's plenty of it here there's yeah. a lot of it here of course there's a hell of a lot of it in the united states as well but um yeah. yeah she was actually that was a really interesting experience it was a bizarre and horrible experience um but we um actually it's true that that i mean again this is yeah it's a travel poem in a sense it happens somewhere else but it's it's not really is it it's it's a human narrative um and um yeah i was with a friend in bratislava we'd spent the day um going to castles and things like that um it's a beautiful city 
yeah, it's a lovely city. And we, 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 it was our last night there and we thought we'll go for a drink. And then this uh, guy approached us and we were naive and young and stupid. And he asked us if we wanted to uh, go for all you like to. We thought we only want a couple of drinks, but you know, it's not that much and it's our last night and nothing else is open. And, um, and then it was pretty much as described. And um, we, we really were naive. We had no idea what we were going in for. And, and, and when, when, this, uh, when, when the woman um, I describe in the poem mm -hmm. sat down next to me, um, I said, I, really, I, don't, I don't really want to be here, if I'm honest. There was no one else there. There were just the two of us in there um, uh, as customers. Customers um and um Pray so i said like. i said can i ask you things about what you do mm -hmm. and she was really really giving but she she um she was passing me her phone and typing them in because she didn't want to be saying anything mm -hmm. and this went back and forth for about five minutes and then we'd finished our drinks and we left and then we were told we couldn't leave until we paid mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and and but she was in a in in a difficult position. She was fleeing um, a, a partner who'd been beating her, and her friend had said you could have some work, and it was her first night. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, she was massively exploited and in a terrible situation. No, yeah, and again, you know, we're linking back to the uh, to the anti-establishment. I think you know part of the the reason that I think I've always been drawn to the best travel writing and writers who decide to at least make that an element of their work, like you very much have, it's because there's this spiritual question that they know for a fact can't be fulfilled within a specific confine. And I wanted to segue now to one of the poems that I think felt to me like one of the most striking of the collection. Um, I still don't know how to feel about it in some ways, just because I feel like it's tugging at something very, very deep within me. Um, and I think it's set in this <laughs> almost nondescript environment where I, I could visualize it being read any part of this planet. Um, would you like to read it for us? It's worth to build. Yeah, um, thank you. And I'm, I'm glad you describe it that way. That's kind of what I hoped for, really. Um, what I will say is um, I wrote this book. Um, I, I began this book at a time when I felt like my life was falling apart. Mm. And I finished it at a time when I felt I'd put my life or my life had come back together again. So there's a, there's a common thread throughout this collection. Um, it, you know, it, it, a lot of it hangs on that and the book's in two sections and this begins the set this poem begins the second section which i'd originally imagined to be the first section but the second section tangentially and maybe only if you really know but it sort of tells that story um and and this poem this poem sets up much of that but but i also think it i hope it works as a, as a in the way you describe as a sort of metaphor for other experiences too um it's called where to build I never thought I'd have a home, but then I'd built one up from the bay, a shrub scrubbed cleft, half hiding it, a plunging stream behind the grate, and locals pointed up or down to where I lived beside myself for years with all I'd wanted most, building a greenhouse, annex, shelves, and made it all I knew to want and drowned the voice that said I don't with all I'd always done for this and grew tomatoes, seed to light, and ate them happily every night and fixed the leak that drew the rain and fixed it when it sprung again. Well, I knew of rock across the bay, a scary, green-topped curving round to out of sight behind near rock, but rain set in the endless rain and through the sheet of endless cloud a jet of sudden light cracked down across that farther hunk of land which glimmered ginger and it stayed for seconds minutes hours days the whole life of my house away wow that's <laughs> that's gorgeous thank you so much you. Could, could you tell us a little about that poem and especially I benefit, frankly, because um, I'd love to hear more. It's, it's a poem that I think I've gone back to the, the most, definitely, in, in the book. Right. Um, and yeah, I'd love to hear more about it, please. <laughs> My God. Um, well, 
I, I don't want to pin it down too much. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be very open, unbuttoned, in a way that I would happily be to you normally and probably wouldn't be on a podcast, but I'll do it anyway. Um, I, uh, um, I, I got married when I was 24 um, uh, to um, my now ex-wife, uh, Libby, and we're still very close friends, but, but we grew apart. And it, it took us a long time to realize we'd done so. And um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's, I think, I don't think it's um, unfair to say this. It was my decision that we, that we part and it was a very difficult one. And I lived with a lot of guilt for that and, and you deserve to do so, I suppose. Um, you, you decide to marry someone, you, you kind of mean it forever, but you, but you can't know what forever means. Um, you can't mean it forever. You just can't, you have to embrace the lie. Um, and I'd done that and, and it hadn't worked out. And, and I was in, uh, 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 I guess, uh, of, uh, of my own making in a way, a sort of slightly vulnerable position, of course. And we moved on with our lives separately and <clears throat> we stayed friends and we're both, we're, we're both very happy now. But she was already in a new relationship. So was I. In both cases, it happened very quickly, quite quickly. Um, afterwards, uh, at least like, you know, quicker than, than, uh, might be optimal for everything to feel separated in the way, in the way you'd want it to. Um, and this poem was really written around that time and about that experience or with that in mind. Um, but I wanted it to be able to reach far beyond that. And also I didn't know whether it was fair at the time to increase her directly in my poems and also like I say I I don't think that my individual story is inherently exciting I think I think poems that prate on about yourself all the time tend not to be very interesting most of the time um but the bibliographical is merely a crutch to sustain the other views the other arguments correct and I suppose I pushed more away more into a kind of abstract impression of that in in a way although it's very concrete as well in other ways, isn't it? But I, I, I abstracted the situation, if you will, um, partly in order to, to preserve um, uh, her at the time, um, oh. uh, my, my wife, uh, my ex-wife. But um, there was no need to do that. But it ended up being, a, I guess, um, uh, a structural device in the poem, weirdly enough, which sounds terrible, but, but that's, that's no, I think the abstraction I think works beautifully. And I think in fact, you know, if I had to <clears throat> give a capsule review of the poem, and this is a line that kept coming back to me every, uh, for every time that I read it was it sang of this homelessness of the heart, you know? Yeah. And I, and I, and I think that, you know, the abstraction perhaps is, is very necessary. Um, that's entirely how I felt. Of yeah. course. Um, and it's entirely how I knew she felt too. Um, yeah. uh, and um, then I had a new relationship, which has, you know, it's wonderful. It's become a, a wonderful sustaining relationship. But uh, um, uh, at the time that was, that was very new. And I felt like I'd kind of uprooted, deracinated myself. And yes, I did feel quite um, sort of um, emotionally nomadic. And, and I suppose that's the point I wanted the poem to get across the possibility of going somewhere else and, and, and leaving behind what you've got, the risk, you know? Indeed. And thank it's you so much for sharing that, that, really. I think that, you know, for, for uh, listeners, I think it's, it's, it's very important, I think, sometimes to be able to reveal the inner workings of the poem uh, and not keep the hood firmly shut like a lot of poets do. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I wondered if you might close for us with one last poem um sure uh, like father and then perhaps you can tell us a little yes bit mate oh okay all right so um my 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 father is um an interesting influence on my life um and we have been very close but he's also been a very difficult influence on my life and i think i think that comes across in the poem largely um the uh when i was so when I was when I was 17, 16, 17, 18, I, I tried to write lots of poems about my um, childhood, my upbringing. I'd, I'd had quite a difficult upbringing in some ways, and my mum had certainly done her best and was a wonderful mother. Um, I grew up with my mother, my grandmother, and my aunt, and for a few years at first my cousin as well in a three-bedroomed house a mile from a village. 
we didn't have a lot of money and my dad was in Ireland and he, he did often make things extremely difficult, um, including with the relationship I had with my mum. When I look back, I was quite quite heavily manipulated in some ways. Um, so I wrote these poems when I was about seventeen or eighteen, um, uh, in the way that most kids do. I bet you did, right? Wrote poems when you were that age that you now Absolutely. look at and think, "Bloody fucking hell, what's that?" You know, and 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 so no I did. No one shall ever find them. <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. Well, well. I was I was going through a drawer at my mum's house um, of of my old kind of junk and rubbish from when I was a teenager, um, and I came across a a, um, a poem that included some of the lines here that was kind of trying to chart my 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 upbringing, and and I realised that that actually this was this poem was written just over half my life ago, which is quite a chilling thing to realise, <laughs> right? Um, and then I thought, well, what would happen if I implant myself? If, if I take my perspective now to look at my perspective then um, while looking at my perspective of my, of my early childhood. Um, and so I wrote that poem. So the poem, and, and partly it was inspired by a poet who will remain nameless, but her initials are, are here, who said that she loved the poems I'd written in my first book about, um, about my upbringing and I should really write more of them. I must have more to say. <clears throat> So the poem is called Like Father, started 2000, finished 2019 for WC. My daddy was Irish and famous. Well, sort of Irish and sort of famous, he said, and told the truth. He loved and he was loved and was a joker. And in his youth, he passed the 11 plus with such high marks they'd sent him to private school plush lawns, straw hats. But then he'd felt oppressed by the Oxbridge conveyor. So that was that, for years, while he wrote in garrets and took real jobs, porter on Jersey, bank clerk. He explored the world and then read English up at Leicester, then at Oxford, and, and won awards and found he was getting in print, but still worked summers at Leicester Station, Goods Yard. Am I as bright as you, Daddy? <laughs> Probably not. So it was hard not to pine for all he represented on access visits and not to be beguiled. But I knew I wasn't as special, that I was an anxious child who liked to play with marbles on his own while mum cooked, watched EastEnders, tidied up. Who teachers said should come out of his shell who had a pup and made her his best friend and got in trouble for daydreaming and caused too much of a fuss about his distant dad, who scrapped, who failed the 11 plus and went to a comprehensive where he learns never to try too hard, who knew his place was in the middle, who watched his lurch drunk father jab at the face of a steadfast woman patently too good to stay with him. She didn't. Who wouldn't become a poet and scholar too, or much at all. He was too dumb. Who later found the custody hearing documents while helping his mother clear her musty attic. The affidavits of all his dad's ex-lovers, each emphatic that, I'm sure the child's interests are best served by being kept from this abusive man, a drunk who bullied and hit me. His arrest statement from when my nan lost her front teeth. I hadn't been told the reason. Until then, I'd seen one short, partial report to which my father had clung. Mum had buried most retorts, and nan was now in her functional little urn. And I was trying to be like him a bit, in fewer and fewer ways, and started a poem. And this is it. Thank you so much, Rory. That was, I, I think, a, a perfect note to end on. Um, I, I'm sure everyone uh, listening really appreciates you <laughs> bearing your heart open. And uh, <laughs> I'm sorry for putting you in that position. Oh, no, but no, I, knew, I could have I knew, always said pass, move on, no comment. <laughs> but I knew, I knew the, the beauty would resolve be worth it. So I, you know, I'll hope 
you'll forgive me being a typical poet, which I, I forget who said this originally, but poets are meant to be carnivores and this is what they feast on. So thank you. Yeah, fair enough. No, thank you, Andre. Thanks very much. Great questions. Thank you. Oh, thank you both. What a great conversation. And, and it was such a treat to hear all of those poems. Um, thank you for sharing them, Rory. And, and Andre, thank you so much for the great questions. Um, all right, listeners, uh, is there anything else you want to say to our audience out there, our invisible audience, before we say our goodbyes? Well, well, I'm, I'm um, going to jump in and say, please buy sweet nothings. Uh, that, that would be my, my, my message. Um, oh, well, I'll jump in and say, please buy Andre's uh, it's Promised Land. It's, 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 it's a fiction. It's, it's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful book. Um, it's got an even more striking cover than mine, perhaps, as well. Um, not that you can judge a book by its cover. Um, if anyone's interested in, in, in my collection, yeah, of course, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love you to to buy that my third book or either of the other two um or you can go to my website which is www.rorywaterman.com and if anyone wants to email me I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear from from them um yeah all right that's it. you guys are great yeah, booksellers plugging um, myself is very difficult i'm just just does not come <laughs> naturally to plug myself it's, it's very strange sort of i'm i'm very english in that way you know like you know it just it you just did, doesn't you did a good job right well with... i think you did well. <laughs> Well, it's also the poet thing. I think it's kind of like, you know, you got the trench coat and you're like, hey, I got some chat books. Yeah, there. poet is a four-letter word, isn't it? It really yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. On that thought, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign off here. Thank you both, Rory and Andre, for being here. Listeners, thank you for listening. We'll catch you on the flip side with our next episode. Let's say goodbye, everyone. So long. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.